HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Hi, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today um, with Alimentum Journal. Uh, we actually haven't covered the spoken word yet, or the written word on the food scene, so this is a very exciting show for me. Uh, have the editor, Paulette the Citra, uh, calling in. Paulette, you here? Yes, I am. Fan- How are you doing? Fantastic, fantastic. And two wonderful contributors, Carly Sachs and Sophie Menon. So uh, thank you all for being on the show. So just going to start off with actually what Alimentum is. I first found it actually at the French Culinary Institute, just kind of lying around and picked up my uh, copy and started reading page to page, done in a train ride, and just was absolutely fascinated, uh, <laughs> waiting for the next issue to come out. But this this journal, uh, literary journal, started when, in 2005? 2005, yeah, the end of 2005, December, is when we uh, premiered the first issue. Excellent. So it's been around. We just celebrated our fifth anniversary with the current issue Excellent. that came out this past December. And uh, congrats to that. Um, Thank you. And what was the impetus? Why did you uh, start? Was there a void in food literature? Well, I don't know. There might have been. Um, 
I, uh, you know, I'm a writer, and I was working on fiction and was familiar with a lot of literary magazines and um, had also uh, recently finished culinary school. And I would see occasionally that um, a literary journal would decide to devote a whole issue just to the theme of food. Yeah. And they would do it periodically, you know, here and there. And I thought, well, what about a lit journal that was about food all the time? And um, so my two favorite subjects, writing and food, you know, kind of came together. And I didn't know anything about publishing, <laughs> but I kind of started on the path, and and there's Elementum. Yeah. Um, no, it's such a wonderful amalgamation. It's such a, you know, well-explored uh, genre now that, I mean, you were, you were almost before that precipice of food media blitz. But... You, you cover it in such a different way, and I'd like to kind of uh, talk about your background, too, uh, because you live in Nashville, right? Yes, I'm, I'm recently transplanted here. I was in New York City for too many years to mention, and now I'm down here in the South. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, why, why the move? Oh, it was a lot of different things. Um, you know, um, I was in Manhattan for, well, in New York City for 30 years, and um, I was looking for a different lifestyle, and uh, a lot of my family um, kind of ended up down in this area. So I, I came and took a look and said, yeah, I can make this work, and, and I'm really happy. It's yeah. a really, really Excellent. great place. But it shows that you can do what you're doing anywhere, because you attended ICE, right? The Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did Sophie. Yeah, and, <laughs> we, were, we were together. Oh, fantastic! That's uh, how we know each other. <laughs> oh, wonderful! Um, I thought it was just you know through writing, but shows that people have many uh, passions. And then through uh, ICE, you you ended up starting a kind of cooking class, cooking school down in Nashville too, right? Yeah, yeah. I started uh, teaching um, mostly Italian-focused uh, cooking classes down here, and it's it's getting bigger and bigger. Um, but um, that that's a whole aspect of it. I didn't think I would get so so much into, but because uh, I was so focused on the writing side of things. But it's been really fun. Yeah. So, what did you and Sophie learn in culinary school? What class did you guys meet in? The whole thing. We, had, yeah. we were in the program together. We went through the whole thing together. <laughs> we did the professional chef program. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the way they set it up is that yeah. you you go through a series of modules that um, cover different areas of, of cooking, and um, you're kind of with the same class through the whole thing. I think what, there were 13 people in our class, I think. Right, Sophie? 13 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how long is the program? It's 100 days, yeah. um, and it depends how quickly you do it. It took about six months, and then you have to go and do a stage in a restaurant for three months. Yeah. What what's, uh, restaurants did you two stage in? I staged at two places. I, I worked in the kitchen at Food & Wine, and then oh, editorial at Food & Wine, and then I did a second stage at Danielle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, quite a mecca. <laughs> quite a mecca. And Paulette, you? Um, I was at uh, Lupa Restaurant. Excellent. And I see you have Jason Denton on your... Uh, team of what is it uh, your advisory board that's right and that's how we met yeah. when i was was i when i was working there yep mm-hmm. oh, fantastic and now carly what are your cooking chops what are mine <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i was just cooking from a very young age with my mom um you know i remember thinking cooking was such a cool thing to do and you know i'd be like you rest i'm gonna cook dinner for yeah. you i remember my like girlfriend and i like 11 you know friday nights we would decide to make like five different kinds of cookies and that was kind of it i just fell in love with cooking early on i'm not really professionally trained i was sort of a chef bread maker in college at the like hippie dippy coffee shop brady's in kent ohio which is sadly no more um 
so then I just started writing food poems, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But you also told me uh, during an email that you compose crazy cocktails. I do. I'm also a mixologist, yes. which I reluctant for, for five, five more shifts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I'm moving. But um, yeah, I kind of got into bartending and got into the mixology. I work um, at a place called the Silverleaf Tavern, which is part of the Kimpton Hotel chain. Oh, I actually And that. so, yeah, so I was um, bartending in D.C. Then when I moved here, switched up here, and then did some training with Jock, who is the mixologist for Kimpton, and came up with a pretty slamming cocktail menu. So it's, it's fun. I mean, drink, drink making is a lot like cooking. Yeah. Ex- Speaking yep. of drinks, um, on the way over here, I reread Sophie's piece that she had sent. It was uh, called First Growth, an essay on love and wine, which I believe was in Alimentum's second issue. Yes. Um, and I want to know, how good was that 61 Lafitte Rothschild? It was so good. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept on reading it over and over again. And the, the, what was the dish that you cooked for that wine? Oh, I made uh, um, an asabuco of lamb yeah. um, with with lardons that was it was so good but it wasn't perfect with the wine yeah yeah <laughs> but it's it's funny to have such a tremendous vintage and such a tremendous grower and such a tremendous dish and be like i might have to push this wonderful food aside just to be able to focus on that wine is this year on my birthday yeah. we decided to drink the best wine i had a big birthday so yeah. we decided to drink the best wine we owned and we had a an 83 latash yeah and th- now I know enough. We drank it at 11 o'clock in the morning yeah. before lunch. <laughs> That's awesome. And then we went to lunch. Yeah. Fresh palate. Yeah. Already. Yeah. Nothing was getting between us and this wine. I, I think I think I'm going to adopt that tradition and start my birthdays by drinking in the a.m. Exactly. Um, That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, starting from such a personal piece uh, that Sophie wrote for you, uh, and then Carly writes these very fun, vivid, quirky, uh, situational poems about someone in a grocery store. Um, what kind of pieces do you look for for Alimentum? Well, um, that's, that's the whole thing. I mean, the, the stuff in Alimentum is so different than what you would read in any other food journal. And you can even see, you know, sometimes um, uh, the essays that are collected for best food writing and, and, and that kind of thing. Actually, we just got an, an essay selected for the next um, best food writing coming up. But um, Oh, congrats. And what, what uh, essay was it? It, uh, it was, it's in the uh, current um, uh, issue, uh, issue number 11 by Ann Hood. Um, and um, now I'm totally forgetting. <laughs> I love it. It's, I think it's called the Golden Silver Palette or something yeah. like that because it's about the Silver Palette cookbook and how how it um, and how she kind of grew as a cook um, with that book. Um, so so that's awfully nice. But um, we kind of look for it's to, for it to be not just about the food, but about um, about where the writer or the fiction character intersect with the food. We want food almost to be a character in the story, even if it's nonfiction, even if it's a poem. Um, it's, it's not just a side thing. It's not just the characters happen to be at dinner. If it wasn't for the food or the wine or the drink or whatever, um, the story wouldn't exist. Um, or the so setting itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or the setting itself, which kind of leads me into Carly's piece, Grocery Store Diva, um, mm-hmm. which you've published a couple uh, excerpts from. And I want, uh, I, I want Carly to read a little bit about this because it, it, it's amazing. 
that food surrounds, but the focus is on Ramona. Um, and Carly, would you share us a small clip of? Sure. Um, well, I'll read the first poem um, in the. The whole manuscript is called Grocery Store Diva, and the premise is it all kind of centered around one story in college when I was going shopping at the grocery store um, with a friend for a Shabbat dinner, and it was a male friend, and we were kind of talking about dating, and, you know, he said, well, if you're looking for love, try the produce section of your local grocery, and I thought, okay, that was it. That was the line, and, and then came this poem, which is called Portobello Prince. The worst advice I ever got was, if you're looking for love, try the produce section at your local grocery. I've been a vegetarian for two years, and I've never taken a romantic stroll down the lettuce aisle. I'm alone from Romaine to Rapini. Week after week, I dream of my prince. He'll be wearing faded jeans and a button-down shirt, preferably periwinkle, and he'll have on sandals, either Tevas or Burks. I can't decide. He'll be holding a bouquet of broccoli, and a shy smile will tiptoe across his face as he approaches me. It's my favorite, he'll say. Mine too. Then he'll slip his arm around me, and we'll fill our buggy with corn and tomatoes, eggplant and bok choy. Anything that grows out of Earth's belly will be fair game. We'll measure the days in corn stalks and potato peels, and I'll wear dresses the color of habanero and summer squash. At our wedding, I'll carry a nosegay of cilantro and basil. We'll push that shopping cart around the aisles, pointing out produce as if we were on a gondola in Venice. The sign on the back will read, Just Cookin'. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's amazing. I, I can even picture your shopping list for that day, too. And it would probably be like milk cereal. That's it. And then this vivid, uh, um, you know, plethora of ingredients comes comes to life. It's, it's, it's so great. Yeah. We are so in love with that series. Um, I think Ramona was in the first first issue of Alimentum, and when that first came in, it was, it was just great. I mean, I, they're so fabulous. In fact, we do have dreams of branching out into Alimentum Press, and that's the first book we want to publish. <laughs> See, <laughs> we just wanted to get that on air. We just wanted to get you to actually physically say that, so and lock you into it. So uh, that's right. Yeah. I think it's sort of been locked in yeah. for a while. Yeah. It just needs to manifest now. Yeah, yeah. But we're, we'll be expecting that on another show of the food scene. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick little break and then come right back and uh, talk a little bit more about food and wine. Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com.
following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Burning Down the House. Architecture is the laser focus of Burning Down the House, a weekly discourse on all things built, destroyed, admired, and despised. Each week, Curtis B. Wayne, your host, invites a posse of authors, critics, builders, designers, and other architecture fiends to reflect on various topics related to perhaps the most functional of all art forms. Again, that's every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the ladies of Alimentum Journal, Paulette Lissitra, the editor, and two wonderful contributors, Carly Sachs and Sophie Menon. Um, and now, actually, we're going to have Sophie read a small excerpt from her first growth, an essay on love and wine. Recently, my husband decided to celebrate the third anniversary of our engagement by opening what might be the best bottle of wine in our collection, a 1961 Lafitte Rothschild. His sister gave him the bottle 25 years ago. Lafitte Rothschild is one of five Bordeaux wines that earned the designation First Growth under the classification of 1855, one of six if you include the Sauterne Chateau Yquem. Most wine aficionados consider 1961 to be the region's premier mid-20th century, century vintage. I must admit, at first I was a little disappointed by the choice. I had wanted to roast a duck. I had visions of crisp skin, dark fatty meat, and a 1985 Schaefer helping to restore the much maligned reputation of Merlot. He knew my fantasy. I had articulated it on more than one occasion. Still, he said, Lafitte Rothschild was not a wine for duck. Lamb reveal would make a much better match. How could I complain? Wanting to be an equal partner to this grand bottle, I rummaged through my books and asked my friends what to make. In the slow Mediterranean kitchen, Paula Wolfert suggested veal shanks, smothered in carriage chestnuts and chanterelles, a favorite recipe of her daughter who works as a wine importer. The recipe took three hours to prepare. I seared meat, rendered lardons, caramelized onions, braised and basted. Finally, I plated the veal shanks in a large earthenware dish over steamed spatula. It was enough food for six. As the earthy aromas perfumed our home, we set the table, we lit a fire, and opened the night's main act. We were dressed casually in jeans, bare feet, and comfortable tees. Still, dinner held all the promise and anxious anticipation, expectation of a lavish black tie affair. Jeffrey pulled out my chair before I sat down, then walked to the credenza and poured a small amount of wine from the decanter into a tasting glass to inspect. He returned to the table holding a white towel beneath the decanter's rim and poured the Lafitte into our hand-blown crystal goblets. After he sat down, we raised our glasses and toasted our life together. We sipped and savored. A 1961 Lafitte Rothschild represents silky, elusive perfection, light on the tongue and supremely balanced, with subtle hints of almonds and violets. The symmetry brings to mind the elegance of a Bach fugue. Moments later, I bit into the veal shank. The chestnuts, lardons, and braised veal bespoke essays and lusty indulgence for carnivorous appetites. I had set I'd set out silver caviar spoons to scoop the marrow, which I adore. As I dipped that curved blade into the soft fat, the scraping of the spoon against the bone brought to mind my bulldog, Satchmo, and how she would have relished this meal. At that moment, I realized I had misstepped. 
The luscious veal shanks seemed somehow immodest in the presence of such a noble wine. Gazing across the candlelight at my husband, I could tell that he too recognized the imbalance. We both chose to be polite, to respect the integrity of all the delights that graced our table, even if they were not complimentary. We chewed our food slowly, savoring each morsel, then took a breath to cleanse our palates before sipping. On this third anniversary of our engagement, the fine food and drink encouraged us to make space for difference, to value both finesse and lust. Of course, a tender lack of ram w- lamb would have been a more elegant mate for this heavenly first growth, and a bold Barolo could have stared down the whole peasant cuisine more fully. It did so splendidly the next night. Hopefully, like dancing together, we'll have years to get these pairings right. I want to go to dinner at your house. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Me too, and yeah. I don't even eat that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to see. I just want to see your cellar. Um, Sophie was saying too that. You hold a cellar at Chelsea uh, Wine Market, or Chelsea Chelsea Market underneath the wine vault. Mm-hmm. Excellent. How many bottles do you have in your collection? Well, we have 18 cases in the cellar, and then another 200 bottles at home, and then various cases stashed yeah. in people's apartments where they'll let us, you know, <laughs> give us a little space. Not, not too bad. Um, uh, it's like an empire. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful empire in the yeah. Empire State. Um, and at, at Chelsea Market, too, it's literally underneath the market it's underneath the market it's temperature controlled you know it's some of it's in open space and you come down people are very friendly they're going through their collections they trade bottles down there it's it's a world unto itself yeah yeah Yeah. i'd I'd like to see a piece written about the the trade of wine underneath chelsea market someday yeah that is that's a great story maybe for you (laughs) (laughs) you see what's so wonderful about sophie's story is that it's not just about you know two people having this wonderful dinner and having wine it's that little twist that um oops this this isn't right you know (laughs) and and how they were so quiet and so um respectful about it but they both knew you know i I just love that little that little kink that that really makes the story you know so, I mean, if there was a submission guideline for Alimentum, what would it be? Would it be looking for those little twists? Well, always that makes a, a story better, you know, than, than just sort of like, let me describe to you this great dinner that I had, and you hear all this wonderful stuff. But to me, that's not a story. I mean, I think that might be closer to journalism, um, whereas, you know, in Alimentum, we're really looking for story. I mean, you know, Carly's poems, every one of those poems is, is a, an event in Ramona's life that's an episode, and it's really a story, you know, but it's also a poem, a really good poem. Yeah. Um, and it's also about food. So, um, so it's like, you know, don't forget, you know, your voice, um, and don't forget you're telling a story. Um, and, um, and that food is, 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 should be bringing out, um, something about your own life and your own relationships. It, it's basically. it's funny to look at your board members. Um, aside from Jason Denton, you have Mark Lansky, who's written Salt, Cod, etc., um, mm-hmm. and Bonnie Slotnick, whose cookbook shop I love in Manhattan, who's mm-hmm. just an epic collector. And they seem much more analytical and much more you know uh, non emotive than your writers in Alimentum. How do they help uh, guide who you have in the book? Well, Mark Kolansky, you know, he's written a lot of fiction also. Yeah. Um, in fact, he's, um, I think his book of short stories is out now. Um, oh, God, I can't remember the 
title of it, but it's uh, we we published a couple of these stories in advance, um, the short pieces of fiction. So he's you know he's he's fabulous. I mean he's yeah. just. Um, He's working on like ten books at the same time, and in from all different areas, a lot of food-focused stuff, but all over the place. He's just a fabulous thinker, and he always and a lot of times as as, as straightforward and as you know informational his as his books can be, but also wonderfully written. He can come from left field all the time, and he's been a great supporter of Alimentum and appreciates appreciates what it's doing so much. Um, right from the beginning, he jumped on so fast, and he he's he's really. A, a, a good supporter. Yeah. Um, you know, and Bonnie, Bonnie is is appreciative of everything across the board that has to do with food. So, you know. Yeah, I'm sure, and she carries your journal. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And actually, uh, on on that note, what other places in New York, Manhattan, Brooklyn, uh, carry Alimentum? Well, you know, we have three distributors, and um, sometimes I don't even know where they are. Um, I know uh, some Barnes & Noble have it if they carry literary journals. Um, or what's that? Uh, McNally Rand, is that the name of the... Um, McNally Robinson. Yes. Yeah, and um, and that fabulous bookstore on 6th Avenue and like 11th Street on the corner, they always have us. Um, I don't know what the name of them are. It's either, I think it starts with a K. Um, we're around. We're uh, Kitchen Arts and Letters. They yep. they carry us. They have, in fact, they try to keep on their shelves all of the issues. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And you're 11 issues in, releasing your 12th this summer. Yeah, in June it's coming out. It's at the printer now. Excellent. And if people want to check out your website, it's Alimentum. That's A L I E, A L I M E N T U M J O U R A L N A L N A L. Yeah, AlimentumJournal.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this and is we've got a lot of stuff. In fact, we're going to start opening up the um, the website to some content um, oh, cool. of short pieces of fiction, poems, and um, short essays. Right now, we've just started in the last year or so um, a lot of book reviews. So we've got like new book reviews every two weeks. There's a new book review posted um, with um, you know food-related books. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. We've got an art gallery. Uh, there's um, every issue of Alimentum has an interview. Um, in fact, the next issue coming up is an interview with Amanda Hesser. The last issue had Judith Jones, and every. Um, interview we put some audio excerpts from the interview on the website um so they're kind of like little sneak peeks and you can you can hear the interviewee as well and you also curate events every once in a while yeah yeah we do we have readings um in fact i want to do this new thing i jumped into my head uh (laughs) sort of like a like an iron chef story slam um uh where it may not even be people reading but i'd like i'd like to make it more extemporaneous if people even if you're not a writer uh to have an event where people will come up and just tell food stories um so i want to start arranging that probably in new york and probably down here too oh that's awesome keep keep us aware of that you know maybe we'll even host our first one on the food scene wouldn't that be cool that would be fantastic i would love that yeah. i would love that um I just wanted to ask Carly and Sophie, too, a little bit, and you as well, Paulette, where you get your inspiration from. Um, Sophie, you write a lot for The Daily Beast, and um, I loved that in your bio it says that you write about uh, food, wine, and the sense of place and the pleasures of the table. What exactly does that mean to you? Um, For me, I'm interested in culture, um, 
And so I like it when the food is connected to the land, is connected to the wine. You know, there's a saying in wine pairing, if it grows together, it, it goes together. Yeah. You know, and the, the intersection of food and wine in life is where I, I find my inspiration, you know, so that it doesn't become something that's fetishized for the sake of fetishizing it, you know, in a very kind of foodie sense of yeah. the word, but in a more holistic, you know, Good living, um, you know, soulful living way. What what bottles of wine embody that for you? Um, I'm going to butcher this name. I just tasted a bottle of wine called Paracone, and it's it's a it's a varietal from the Marsala area of Sicily, and it's a red wine. It's inexpensive, and it goes beautifully with spicy seafood and saffron and so all of a sudden you find yourself cooking sicily and taking a a sensual sensory journey to sicily through this wine and the foods you're going to make to go with it so you feel like you're halfway between europe and and north africa yeah or i was actually just in sicily you kind of feel like you're everywhere and nowhere at the same time it's It's so beautiful yeah it's a fascinating place and then carly aside from the supermarket <laughs> you, I also wanted to note too that you are a yoga teacher, um, so you have a whole another side to your life. Um, started writing for Yoga City, and you're going to start a, gear. a yoga internship at um, Kripalu, um, which is a yoga and holistic center in the Berkshires, which also has um, fantastic food. Yeah. So th- I, that's one of the reasons why people go. It's like oh yoga, but then the food. Um, it's going to be strange not cooking for myself for like a year or two. Yeah. I think I'm going to have to like tell my friends who live there, hey, I'm going to come over and make pancakes, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, I think inspiration, at least with the food poems, um, probably with a lot of my other writing, comes from from taste and comes from the senses. That it's something that is very visceral and all of the senses kind of take you back to place. So it's kind of like A goes back to B, goes back to C. And before you know it, there is a whole story that has emerged without you being very conscious of the process. So I think that's kind of what happens. Like I know this is my favorite thing to do when I bartend is ask people, you know, why this gin? Or when did you first have this drink? Yeah. Tell me the story behind it. You know, and you hear you hear some really great stuff, and same thing goes with food. You know, everything takes somebody back to a place or a person or a story, and and that's that's really what just interests me is because we're all we're all the same. We all have that, whether it's you know, wine and meat or you know, tofu or whatever. We all have that connection, and and it's all bound in the wonderful Alimentum Journal. Now, Paulette. Mm-hmm. You're a writer as well, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have a little something to share with us? Oh, no, that's interesting. You know, I kind of just uh, j- um, picked something out um, from a previous journal that isn't a piece of writing of mine. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I could if you want to go that way, it's, it's too. It's completely up to you. Whatever you'd like to submit, we'd love to hear. Okay. Um, all right. Well, since I already pulled this out, why don't I why don't I read this poem um, by a poet, um, Alison Townsend? Um, and it's called Home Economics. Do you want me to read it now? Oh yes, please. Okay. Um, in eighth grade, I got an A on my home ec notebook for recipes clipped from my stepmother's my stepmother's magazines and arranged in menus more elaborate than the scroll work design on her silver. 
You'll be a fine little homemaker someday, Mrs. Florio wrote along the margin in turquoise, her perfect Palmer script, the epitome of all I was terrified of becoming. I still level off dry measures with the edge of a knife the way she instructed and put my ingredients away one by one as I use them, keeping my counter space focused and clear. I'm even good at it when I want. I fool everyone with my satiny gravy, balsamic vinaigrette, or pastry brise so delicate it dissolves like a dream in the mouth. But most of the time I do not cook because my mother died before she had time to teach me how, and because loss made me a mother too young, my hands shining with grease from chicken parts or hamburger patties, while my stepmother locked herself into her bedroom every evening, too nervous or ill to deal with feeding children. She only rallied for parties, making exotic shrimp curry, tomatoes marinated in olive oil with basil, or chicken simmered with artichokes that tasted as if they came from sunny places. Every meal ended with her special ambrosia, a mix of mandarin orange, I'm sorry, a mix of mandarin oranges, coconut, and pineapple, held together by miniature mar marshmallows and sour cream. I recognize it now as standard American picnic fare, but ambrosia seemed sophisticated to me then, and the recipe has accompanied me into my adult life on a grease-spattered card scrawled in my stepmother's handwriting that has traveled through six different states and half a lifetime. Funny what gets handed down. I don't have any of my mother's recipes. Saturday mornings back then, my sister and I helped Dad select the week's groceries at Peach Lake Market. Apps frozen lasagna, Swanson's tuna or, or turkey pot pies, the oven crisp puffs of potatoes called tater tots. We still laugh over the uh, we still laugh over the foods of our childhood, unable to believe that it's what we lived on, let alone looked forward to as if we were as if it were something good. But perhaps it was. Maybe this is what childhood is like for everyone. But something sad floats beneath our laughter. I lied before. There are moments, rare ones, usually while preparing a meal together with my husband, when I actually enjoy cooking, its sense of possibility, potential, and surprise. I sip my wine and laugh as I slice red peppers julienne style, enjoying my good knives against the cherry walnut cutting board. But inside I'm nervous. I can't ever quite forget that girl with the chilled, greasy hands struggling to prepare dinners for seven. How lonely she was there alone in the kitchen, with no one to show her the way. How uncertain. And how she got an A in home ec, because she needed to learn somewhere. The girl inside watching, while the woman learned to cook. Well, so that's a, that was like a, a prose poem. Yeah. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that in the beginning. No. But, um, it's a short piece. But it, it's strikingly beautiful and chilling at the same time, because, I don't know, I'm always under this assumption that food is about family but not mm -hmm. about family not being there um so i mean i think the majority of what uh, at least you, we see in food media is about coming together rather than learning how to be apart uh yeah we get you know michael we get so many submissions we we get a lot of submissions and it's amazing um the the variety and the range of experience people have had with their relationship to food. I mean, we've published many pieces where it's a, not a good relationship. You know, it's a yeah. problem, um, and uh, and not just things like anorexia, um, but it's it's just this kind of strange struggle of a relationship. Um, 
because it's so much a part of our lives. I mean, you can't avoid it. It's there every day. And, you know, we can have this wonderful embracing relationship or maybe too much embracing relationship, um, or there can be this this um, conflict, you know. And um, since with all these submissions we get, we really get to see such, such a, a wide range of experience. Yeah. And the thing is is that we you know we're not like we're happy to publish um pieces where people are really expressing some struggle that they had. Um, of course, the, uh, our main thing that we're always looking for is great writing, so that's the first thing. Excellent. And then how the subject is dealt with is, is pretty wide open. And how do people uh, submit to Elementum? Well, we do it the old-fashioned way. It's just snail mail, yeah. and um, we have a reading period, actually, which just, which just closed in March, so it's usually from about... Um, November to March or October to March. Excellent, and that's annually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So people got a you know a whole year to get ready to submit to <laughs> next year's Alimentum Journal. I'll let you spell that yourself. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to thank you all for coming, uh, reading your pieces, submitting to Alimentum, and keeping this kind of food writing alive. So thank you, Carly, Sophie, Paulette. Our sponsor, uh, Sam Edwards of Surrey Farms, Jack Inslee, our wonderful producer. You can listen to the poop scene on heritageradionetwork.com and hope you have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This little nugget comes from Food Safety News, which is a blog that you can get every single day if you want to sign up for it. I love it. And in this one, it says, in what qualifies as ground-shifting news in the food safety world, the U.S. Department of Agriculture today on Tuesday lopped 15 degrees off of its recommended temperature for safely cooking whole cuts of pork, aligning it with guidelines already in place for beef, veal, and lamb. Heating steak, roasts, and chops to an internal temperature of 145 degrees Fahrenheit so long as the meat sits briefly before it's eaten is enough to ensure its safety, the USDA said. This latest revision for pork comes again on the advice of the FSIS, which is the Food Safety Inspection Service, which says cooking cuts of pork to 145 degree Fahrenheit with a three-minute rest is as safe as cooking them to 160 degrees the previously recommended temperature with no rest time. So um, now you can have a little bit of pink, juicy pork, even if you're buying commodity pork, which should vastly improve its taste and eating quality. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's no problem that Dave Arnold can't solve on his show, Cooking Issues. Take a little listen. So Naveen writes in and says, Hi Dave, I'm fascinated by chocolate, especially the transformation from the bitter seeds of the cacao tree uh, to a tasty chocolate bar. That is a, a, a very interesting transformation. Are there any other foods that undergo a similar set of steps, fermentation, roasting, grinding? Also, do you know of any other tropical fruit seeds that could become delicious through such a process? Thanks, Naveen. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously coffee, right? Coffee goes through uh, you know, a similar, uh, similar set of procedures, uh, quite literally, uh, fermentation, 
drying, roasting, grinding, uh, brewing. Um, and uh, vanilla goes through picking uh, fermentation, right? It's dipped in usually in boiling water uh, and then wilted and then fermented. So it's similar. And then I guess it can be ground to form a paste. But vanilla doesn't taste like vanilla until it goes through its its uh, its paces um, to be fermented. In fact, the vanilla that's uncured is called red vanilla. You can get it. Uh, it's interesting. If you like not- what you hear, you can hear a new show every Tuesday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network or subscribe to the podcast or check out the archives on our website.